Good evening, Crypt Keepers. It's time for a special announcement. You all know about the infamous Zombie Road from our podcast, a real-life dark forest just west of St. Louis. Well, we're planning a free Zombie Road tour on Saturday, October 28th at noon. All are welcome, but the tour will include descriptions of violence, death, and hauntings. Zombie Road boasts an array of hauntings, including shadow people, a railroad worker's spirit, a lady in white, old blue, the mummy, a monkey man, flannel man, black-eyed kids, and so much more. Deaths were commonplace in the area, beginning with Native American battlegrounds, suicides, accidental deaths, and murders. The tour will be 100% free, and we will have some merch for sale, so bring some cash. Join us for a Halloween party like no other on the infamous Zombie Road. Feel free to come dressed up in your scariest costume. We'll see you there Saturday, October 28th at 12 p.m. Central Time. Sherman Beach Park, 1582 St. Paul Road, Baldwin, Missouri, 63021. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. All right, good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome. Welcome to part two of the Vertical Plane. I'm joined, as always, by a man with a constant heart drive. Ryan, what's up? <laughs> Not much. I have a sexy-sounding cold, just like Phoebe. I'm going to try to get my singing career off the ground after this. We'll keep uh, your talking to a minimum, which is still going to be a long time, so... <laughs> yeah. Let me roll through what they need to know real quick. You can find us on TikTok, YouTube, which we have a new Zombie Road tour video on. And this is a lot of footage. It's not just a a podcast with uh, the titles rolling behind it. You can find us on X, Gab, Truth, Instagram, and probably some other stuff out there we're not uh, aware of. Email us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you think about the Doddleston messages. You can find our merchandise at crypticpodcaststore.com. If you remember a few episodes back, we asked for your yokai stories, and we got a few. We're going to keep the contest open for another week. So if you missed it, just shoot us a short background and pic of a yokai you made up. If you don't know what a yokai is, go back a few episodes and listen. It's a great episode that has a little fun with these Japanese spirits. Ryan will select a winner to receive a prize of his choosing. Have you chosen the prize yet? We're still working on it. It it will be something of value. At least the same value as the stamps we need to mail it. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So I've got a couple uh, couple to read off here. Um, and I'm not going to mention who these are from, just in case they... Uh, want to keep their anonymity so the first one is kiko deep in the heart of the ancient japanese forest lived a weird yokai named kiko kiko was not a fearsome creature he has a round chubby body covered in moss and leaves and mischievous twinkling eyes kiko looked more like a walking shrub than a yokai but kiko had a very important job he was the forest's protector Kiko is known for his unusual methods. He didn't scare away intruders with roars or threats. Instead, 
He made them laugh so hard that they forgot why they had come to the forest in the first place. One day, a group of loggers entered the forest, ready to cut down trees. As they began their work, Kiko sprang into action. He disguised himself as a clumsy lumberjack. He wore pants that were too short, and his hat was always slipping over his eyes. As the loggers swung their axes, Kiko mimicked their every move, but exaggerated it to the point of hilarity. He would, tip o- he would trip over tree roots, accidentally cut down saplings, and his attempts to yield timber would end up sounding like songs. The loggers burst into laughter, dropping their tools and slapping their knees. Amidst the laughter, Kiko took the opportunity to talk to them. He explained how vital the forest was to the balance of nature, how the trees provided oxygen and shelter for animals and kept the soil healthy. The loggers, still chuckling, realized the importance of preserving the forest and decided to abandon their destructive mission. If only it were so simple. Right. Next is... And I don't know if I'm saying this right. I don't know if this is a made-up name. I didn't look to see if it means anything in Japanese. But Hoshigasa. Hoshigasa. The silly anthropomorphic (laughs) hat yokai. Hoshigasa, or simply Hoshi for short, is a sentient straw hat brought to life by ancient magic. Legend has it that Hoshi was created centuries ago by a whimsical sorcerer who wished to teach a lesson about the importance of embracing one's unique style. The magical hat, adorned with colorful patterns, gained a spirit of its own, turning into a yokai that embodied the essence of silliness and style. Hoshi's mission is as peculiar as its nature. It wants to be worn, and it takes great offense when it is not placed atop a person's head. Despite its lack of arms and legs, Hoshi can levitate and fly, enabling it to follow those who neglect to wear it. When Hoshi finds someone who should be wearing it but isn't, it embarks on a series of playful attacks, not intending to harm, but rather to tease and tickle. It might create a light breeze, make amusing sounds in the wearer's ears, or even conjure up harmless pranks like turning the wearer's socks into feathers or making their shoes dance. These antics are meant to convince the person to wear the hat, and once they do, Hoshi's mischief ends, and it happily settles on their head. Content? and victorious. Fumiko. There once existed an endearing silly yokai named Fumiko. Fumiko was not your typical supernatural being, but instead she took the form of a cozy plump beanbag chair with a charming face and tiny squishy arms that could hug anyone who sat on her. Probably startled some people too. She came into existence from the laughter and warmth shared among friends gathered around cozy fireplaces. Over time, she absorbed the essence of comfort, becoming the embodiment of all things snug and inviting. However, Famiko had a peculiar trait that set her apart from other yokai. She felt neglected and lonely when no one sat on her. When left unoccupied, Famiko would emit soft sighs. Her cushions would deflate, as if expressing her disappointment. Her button eyes, usually sparkling with delight, would dim, and her squishy arms would droop sadly. Fumiko longed for companionship, seeking the warmth of human presence. Those who knew of her and her need to be sat upon were charmed by her innocence and the absurdity of her existence. They would seek her out, relishing the joy of making her happy by sitting on her. I don't know if this is my favorite or not, but it it was an interesting choice. So I'm assuming this is supposed to be micro. 
In the city of Podcasteria, where podcasters and storytellers weave tales into digital airwaves, there existed a strange yokai named Micro. Micro was not frightening or menacing. Instead, it was an anthropomorphic microphone with a sleek metallic body and a pop filter that resembled a friendly smile. Micro had a unique duty in the podcaster's realm. It served as the guardian of audio ethics. Podcasters revered Micro not just for its enchanted capabilities, but also for its sense of justice. Micro had a peculiar power. It could discern the sincerity in a podcaster's voice, and sadness fell on any podcaster who didn't utilize Micro's gifts when they recorded their shows. Legend had it that long ago, when the first podcasters emerged, they made a pact with the ancient spirits. In return for their storytelling gifts, they promised always to honor the craft by using Micro. Those who adhered to this pact were blessed with captivating stories and engaged audiences, but those who dared to ignore it faced Micro's unique form of retribution. One day, a young podcaster named Alex, brimming with confidence, decided to record an episode without Micro. Believing their voice was powerful enough without the yokai's help, they dismissed the ancient pact as superstition. Little did Alex know that Micro was always listening. As soon as the recording began, Micro's metallic eyes glowed and it sprang into action. Micro transformed into a streak of light, zipping through the city's digital waves until it materialized in Alex's studio. Just as Alex was about to start the show, Micro's enchanted cords stretched out, wrapping around the podcaster. Suddenly, Alex's voice was drowned out by bizarre sounds, quacks, meows, and even the occasional kazoo tune. The listeners expecting... The listeners, expecting insightful content, were instead greeted by a cacophony of chaos. Realization hit Alex, and he quickly apologized to Micro, promising never to forsake the yokai again. With a satisfied hum, Micro released its grip, allowing the podcaster to continue. From that day forward, no one dared to record without Micro, for they knew the consequences could be both hilarious and embarrassing. And I like that one. The only thing that kind of bugs me about it is it sounds very much like it was written by an AI. So we we see you, guy. We know we know what uh, Micro is all about. So keep those yokai stories coming, and we'll pick a winner after next Thursday's show. Let's get to Doddleston. So we did get a couple emails on Doddleston. Carla from Florida asks if there were any phone calls in the Doddleston messages. Are we going to get to that today or? No, there are no, there's no phone calls. There's no voice communication other than kind of Debbie's visions. Okay. And then Eli from Mississippi asks why we haven't heard of this story before. We go deep. That's why. I think there's a lot of other podcasts and maybe YouTube channels that have touched on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But up until 2021, it was so hard to get a hold of this book. And as far as I was able to find, there's still no, you know, audiobook version. There's no Kindle version. Gotcha. You have to get the real thing. So when I first heard about this and tried to get the book, it was like 450 to 500 wow. to buy it. And then in 2021, they did this re-release, and I was able to get a hold of it then. And then I just, 
uh, teased you guys about it for like a year <laughs> and didn't read it <laughs> or read parts of it and never finished. Fair enough. I mean, I think that is a pretty good reason. If um, I don't think most podcasts have 500 bucks to blow on a book to do an episode on. Maybe uh, Rogan could do it, but there's not a lot out there with that kind of bankroll. Yeah, I mean, you might have been able to find it at a library or something, but it, it's not. it was not easy to track down. Oh, man. You know how they always have the super expensive price at the library? Like, you could get, like, a paperback from you know, 10 years ago. And it's like, Oh, this is twenty nine ninety nine If you don't return it next time I'm at my local library, I'm going to look for the vertical plane and see how much they have on it. You know, like, yeah. See if it's the first edition one. And then, yeah. Like, it's just a thousand dollars if I don't bring it back. Right. And then I just won't bring it back and sell it for 500. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to do just a short recap? Because if you're listening to this episode, this recap will be helpful if you've heard the first episode. But if you haven't heard the first episode, there would be no point in listening to this one. So, Sure. Yeah, I can give a real quick recap. Okay. So this story starts in late 1984 in the village of Doddleston in England. And it starts with primarily as the you know sort of protagonist of the story, it's a couple... Ken Webster and his girlfriend, Debbie, who I'm not actually sure if they ever mentioned her last name. They have a friend who comes to stay with them named Nicola. And she just kind of did a walkabout journey for like a year. She's about, I don't, they're, they're all between 19 and about 32, I would say, for the run of the story. And she, I guess, had sort of a quarter-life crisis. But anyway, she comes and she ends up living with Ken and Debbie, who just redid the first floor of their cottage, which it's England, so it's pretty old. And activity gets stirred up. But the main part of this story begins with Ken bringing a computer from the school that he worked at into the cottage so that Nick could use it to write scripts and things for her, just her creative work. When they would leave the computer on by accident, messages would appear. New text files would appear in the disks that they were using. These appeared to be messages from somebody from around 1521, and we later find out that they range from then until about 1546. And they're from somebody who initially doesn't sign, then he signs LW, then he signs Lucas Wayneman, then he starts signing Lucas, and eventually love Lucas. <laughs> mm -hmm. But throughout this whole thing, they're experiencing poltergeist activity. They're finding tins of cat food and bottles of juice and things stacked up in unusual arrangements. Sometimes they're coming home to find all of their furniture swept to one side of the room and up against the kitchen door. They're feeling gusts of wind that blow papers around when there are no windows or doors open in the house. They even hear footsteps on the roof, and when they run outside to try to figure out who it is, there's nobody there. Nothing there, no damage, no footprints, nothing. And they eventually start calling in SPR, or the Society for Psychical Research. And they really can't debunk it, but they also are refusing to take it seriously, which yeah. is pretty frustrating for everybody involved, including <laughs> me as the reader. Yeah. And at this point, I believe around where we left off, Lucas had been 
thrown in jail for having communicated with something that the church at his time thought was evil. Mm -hmm. He's been released, and they finally found out that his real name is Thomas. And they've started to connect the dots with Thomas Howarden, who's a real historical figure, and they're able to start tracking his history. I think that's probably enough. You could, Yeah, I think that's good. There's so much detail in this story. <laughs> yeah, so definitely listen to the first episode if you haven't. All right, you ready to finish this story up? So I believe we left off on Chapter 27, or after Chapter 27. So we're getting into the events of Chapter 28. All right, so at the start of Chapter 28, Ken is becoming more depressed. He's He doesn't deal well <laughs> with pressure or dealing with these multiple situations. He doesn't deal well with... His work and the fact that he's not particularly happy. He doesn't deal well with the things that are going on with SPR. And he's not dealing well with the things that are going on with Thomas slash Lucas. And he's talking about how he would drive around just to get out of the house. And he's honestly kind of mean to Debbie a little bit, Mm -hmm. which makes me feel bad for her. Mm -hmm. But it's another thing that makes me think that maybe this is real. Mm Hmm. Because you wouldn't yeah. want to just admit to being a jerk. True. Normally, like if you're if you're creating a fictionalized version of this, like you probably wouldn't include these details. Yeah. But he talks about driving his car to a nearby river, and thinking about the way that the river would just swallow up the vehicle if he drove in. Nobody would ever mm-hmm. know he was there. Wow. Uh, it seems like Lucas hears these thoughts. Somehow, Lucas knows what he's thinking because he receives uh, a new letter that are lines from some poem that would have been... It's another thing that probably they weren't meant to look into too closely because they find that this poem had not been published at the time Mm -hmm. that Thomas was supposed to be writing, but it had possibly been created, and he just tells them that he heard it at college and then again from some traveler that he had dealt with. So they just kind of let that go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ken goes to a friend named Sarah and they're trying to get more in touch with Lucas's time, Thomas's time. So Ken goes with a friend named Sarah to try to find a place where they can get more in touch with Thomas's time and what he would have lived like. And they find a place called Snow's Hill Manor. And there's even a little poem about it that he includes. And I was able to find some information about this place online when I was, you know, writing out all my notes. Mm Mm-hmm. But the poem is old am I, so very old. Here centuries have been. Mysteries my walls enfold. None no deeds I have seen. And then it's signed Snows Hill Manor, Charles Wade. Hmm. And they do some research on this Charles Wade guy. He'd been dead for about 40 years by the time they get there. Okay. So that would put his death, you know, at the current time in the story, it's 1985. So around 1945, this guy died. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these deals where you can take tours. So they're going through this house and they find that it's pretty devoid of anything modern. I mean, even 40s modern. Mm-hmm. And the house is so full of books and collections and things that the guy had had his study in a converted part of the stables. Mm-hmm. And Ken is going through it and he's writing about what it makes him feel. He's looking at the stained glass and the wood and the leather and the you know the desks, the books. And he's talking about that this place is free of distraction. 
and would allow one to be more in tune with nature or God or whatever your particular purpose was. He's talking about how for all these advances we've made, the only thing we have to show for it are trinkets to entertain ourselves with Mm. and to distract ourselves from what's important, which I think it was a really, I mean, it's much more true today than back then. Because while I was reading this, I'm thinking about, I'm sitting here with a computer over there, an iPad over there. I've got a Chromecast with Google TV hooked up over there. Mm -hmm. You know, my S23 Ultra, like all this tech. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it does seem like just a distraction, truthfully. Like a lot of it's super cool. There are really cool things that you can do. Yeah. But... You know, do you need the iPad playing YouTube videos next to you while you're actually doing work on your computer? Probably not. Right. It's something that spoke to me through this, that he's even thinking back then. And this is a guy, I think I might have mentioned in the first episode, they don't even have a TV in the cottage. Right. They talk about the fact that when they hang out in the living room, they're pretty much just reading newspapers, reading books, talking. Sometimes they're playing music, like playing it themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. When they talk about listening to music, they mostly talk about going into the car and putting a tape in. Mm. So they're living pretty, pretty uh, rustic lives yeah. themselves. So he comes away from this trip with a kind of calm, but like weariness. Mm-hmm. And he receives another one of these letters from Thomas saying that by the time Ken is his age, because we believe Thomas slash Lucas to be about 50. Right. He's saying that he will shed no more tears for himself because he'll realize that life is glorious. Hmm. And again, if it's a hoax, why do you have the hoaxer trying to comfort the person that they're hoaxing? It's just the whole thing doesn't make any sense and there's no incentive to do it. Right. So Lucas slash Thomas, and I keep using those interchangeably. I should just definitively switch to Thomas. But Thomas is talking about that he has problems during this time because he's trying to find Catherine, the 14-year-old girl who had been his cook or servant. I think she was supposed to be his cook. It's not super clear through the communications that they actually include in the book. Mm -hmm. He heard at one point that she was hanging out at some local pub, but he wasn't able to find her. And then he heard a rumor that she had been burned as a witch. So the group did some research and found that there had been no witch burnings in that location in that year, and they let him know, and it seemed to comfort him. Mm -hmm. So by chapter 29, we know that 2109 is once again able to interfere with the computer and with some of their communications. The poltergeist activity has also started up again, and... You know, there's there are sounds, things are starting to move, things are getting stacked again. Mm-hmm. And an interesting thing that we discover, they mention it to Thomas, and he tells them that this has been happening all along with him as well. Mm-hmm. And he asked them if they know why it's happening or if it's something that they're doing, and they said that they, they don't they don't know, they don't know if they're doing it, they don't know that they're doing it. Yeah. I find it really interesting that he's like, holy shit, this has been happening to me too. Yeah. Like, are you, do you know how to stop this? Thomas does find out that Catherine was burned. Hmm. It was not an official thing, which is probably why there's no record of it. He says that it's just kind of a 
common witchcraft. local practice. Yeah, that and it's just basically ignored by the authorities as some custom, and they just let it happen. Wow. But he's really upset about it. And Ken is also upset about it, thinking about a 14-year-old kid who was killed because he feels that he has selfishly continued this communication and this friendship, knowing that they could be in danger because of it. Mm. The uh, poltergeist activity continues, and it's interesting that you say maybe 2109 is part of it. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder that myself, because the next few things that happen are the computer starting to move. Mm. They come in one day to the kitchen where they usually have it set up, and it's missing. Hmm. And they find it just sitting in the bathroom, undamaged, as though it's just been picked up piece by piece, walked in and sat down. Well, I mean, maybe, you know, we take our phones to the bathroom. Maybe 2109 takes their 60-pound, eight-piece computer to the bathroom. Yeah. I mean, I would play some uh, Zork or whatever on the <laughs> on the pot. <laughs> yeah. Make a so, happy birthday banner in the dot matrix printer. <laughs> yeah. 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 Make an unpooping banner to hang outside. <laughs> with the green and white paper. Right. Yeah. It has to be that with the lines. Yeah. They later on hear a crashing sound, like a metallic sound. And they find that the disk drive has fallen off the computer. Because remember, back in those days, the disk drive was a separate thing that plugged in. Yeah. That had fallen, and the monitor was sort of teetering on the edge, but nothing else is damaged. But the computer has to go in for repairs, because without the disk drive, they have no way to save these messages, and they start leaving out pencil and paper. Mm -hmm. Lucas, pretty quickly, I mean, they're able to switch quickly between communication mediums, but he's able to use the pencil and paper to let them know that a man called One has visited him. Mm. And... I think I called him Lucas again. Maybe I should just keep calling him Lucas. I can't make myself call him Thomas. Yeah, let's just let's just keep calling him. I'll just Lucas. stick with Lucas because I can't. I can't stop. I can't help myself. So he tells him that, or he, what he's saying is that he thought the guy was there for the leams, you know, for the the computer. That's what he calls it still. Mm-hmm. And well, I'll just I'll just read what he says. He okay. says, "My brother Ken." The man who came to our home when I last spoke was the man called One. I asked him if he came to take the Leams boys away. He spoke straight away and said that he had no want for the Leams, but that it wasn't mine to offer. I could see that he was intending to stay with both feet planted firmly here, so I didn't try to move him. He continued, Any mishaps that have befallen you are your own. You have no power over this thing. For it is like a child without a caring family. It doesn't know the forces within its reaching arms. You and your brothers are in great trouble. If, but you put the leaves back on its own. Think well, but don't tell your fellows. Hmm. Now, they don't know what this means, like putting the leaves back on its own. They don't know what power they're talking about. Ken speculates that they're talking about the poltergeist. Mm-hmm. I speculate that they're talking about the communicating through time aspect of this whole thing. That makes more sense to me. <laughs> yeah. It's very cryptic, but yeah. Yeah. And Lucas follows this up by saying, this is how, why I haven't been writing. What do you think? What, what mishaps are we going to come to ill? Please answer soon. He also says that he believes they all 
continue to communicate and they believe that this person one is somehow opposed to 2109. Okay. And is trying to convince them not to continue cooperating with them. Yeah. What if this is some sixth graders science project in 2109? You know what I mean? Like, Oh, Bill, you did uh, great with your science project. I mean, you fucked history. But uh, good job. Yeah. What a twist. There are things that we have now. I think it's 11 Labs. They're the ones where they have a service where you can clone someone's voice. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine showing that to somebody just 20 years ago. Or even today. Hey, I recorded you secretly on this phone call. I fed it into a computer, and now I can make your voice say anything I want. Well, Dr. Hasseltine talks about it on Thursday, so we'll we'll find out. Chapter 30. I think it makes sense to continue breaking it down by chapter. Yeah. Because they, they're sort of themed in a way. This one mm-hmm. is primarily about 2109. Oh, good. 2109 is contacting Ken and, and the gang to try to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. They are they are they're unable to figure out what's been communicated. They haven't been able to control anything, and they're starting to write in a little bit of a different way. But they're also starting to answer questions too, which is really mm-hmm. interesting, and it's somewhat less cryptic than normal. Mm-hmm. So Ken and Debbie ask it about the poltergeist activity, and they say poltergeist phenomena is as follows. Find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Surplus kinetic energy projected by either one or more individuals or by storage channels held within buildings and places where strong emotions such as frustration have been felt. So this sounds like stone tape theory. Yeah. Most common energy centered around an individual released for many reasons, usually children of the ages between 12 and 19, 87.9% girls. In all but three recorded case, no injuries inflicted by the source. Last cases of injuries sustained by falling beam recorded in 2006. The force is usually an extremely foul entity which seems to thrive on strong adverse emotions, making little sense in its communication. It seems to play on an individual's fear, dislikes lack of attention, has been thought at one stage that this was an individual's cry to be noticed. So pretty interesting and pretty coherent. Mm -hmm. I think this is a common idea now, but again, this is 1985. Right. And they're talking about Poltergeist, poltergeist cases in 2006 as being the last one with a recorded injury. They go on throughout this exchange to get a little bit more clarification. And 2109 tells them that poltergeists have no consciousness in the way we think of it. They're essentially just influenced by the person who creates them or by whatever the source of that energy is. They also start saying that they believe Ken and his group have Lucas's real name. And at first they don't want to admit to anything because they're, they're getting messages from Lucas saying, don't cooperate with them. Fuck these guys. 
essentially they're getting the same message from one, although they're not directly communicating with one, but they understand that that's this person's position as well. Mm -hmm. But 2109 says that they're not playing any games and that there's a potential problem there and they have to understand exactly what's going on or there could be devastating consequences that they can't really explain. They eventually admit that they do have Lucas's real name and it's really weird the message that they get. They they said it within one hour of telling them that they had Lucas's name, they get this message that says, Oh, if only you had listened. At present you have two Lucases running around your house. If at any time the two are to meet, we cannot explain the devastation that will erupt within the time continuum. We must stop communication with Lucas One, but we cannot interfere with the other while we decide what can be done to rectify the problem. You must help be giving us every word uttered by Thomas Howardine from the second you received his true name. You must also state how much information you have on this man, everything, word for word. Avoid any other communication you may have with him. Desperation, be quick, 2109. Huh. And the you must help be giving us. I'm just reading it verbatim the way that they did. Because right. there are a I lot love, of typos. And, I love that they're like, you must give us every word, word for word. No mistake. And then they're just like haphazardly typing messages. Making typos all over the place, yeah. So after this, the group discuss. And they're trying to figure out what they should do. And they they have a new message hmm. they go into the kitchen and they find that brick pillar has been marked with chalk saying what are you scared of ken deb peter written in angular capital letters hmm. and they're not sure who this is i don't think they ever really figured it out they think it might be one but they can't tell so before we move on they're saying lucas one and lucas two and then also one is a different entity or are they saying that one is lucas one or lucas no, one they're... is 1500s lucas lucas two is 1985 they lucas. never explain the two lucases okay all right well, one so it seems now. to be a separate entity kind of a rogue person against 2109 okay it's like a code name i suppose i don't know yeah, that's really weird that there would be two Lucases. Two Johns, I'd totally get. But, <laughs> I mean, and Lucas, you know, is not a totally uncommon name, but it's odd that, like, he chose Lucas, and then there's this other Lucas who may be a, a I don't know, are we saying it may be a dark entity at this point? Or I think what they're probably trying to say is that there's a separate Lucas that's been diverted from its original path through time by their interference. That's Lucas my the lid off. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 90s music reference. People. So there's more communication with 2109. They're Ken and them are kind of losing patience and they start telling them to tone down this poltergeist activity which they say they'll try. Mm-hmm. They also tell him to ask David what he thinks of conjectural tachyons. And what of his theories of causality? What answer does he have for this paradox? Cheers, 2109. Hmm. David is one of the SPR guys. 
Okay. And this is one time where they're just, they just give this message. They say, ask him this. And they realize that they need to get SPR back in there because for some reason 2109 wants them. And 2109, <laughs> one of Ken's coworkers refers to SPR as the Psychobillies. I don't know where the name awesome. comes from, but I love it. The Psychobillies. And 2109, like they refer to them as that amongst themselves now. Hmm. But 2109 starts addressing letters to the Psychobillies and referring to them that way. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's I actually like that quite a lot. <laughs> so they're having to show them these messages where they're being called Psychobillies. It's so good. More back and forth with 2109. This is mm-hmm. for chapter 31. Ken is getting more and more frustrated. He's getting more rude, but trying not to be exactly threatening. Peter writes out a much better explanation uh, of what they need and what they understand and the information that's proof that they're looking for. And they do manage to get a pretty good response. And I think I even mentioned this response after we were done recording with uh, Dr. Hasseltine. But they they respond to Peter a lot better than Ken because Ken's been mean to them. (laughs) Right. So they say, Peter, you are, without any exaggeration, a clever and cautious man whom have thought with great care your words. The use of the word dimensional has more relevance than you are given to believe, but we can see you care not for beating around the bush. You want to know only facts. We can understand in your fear that communications with us may jeopardize your authenticity of this phenomena and consequently the language of Thomas Howarden. But you still must have some facts. Understandable. Yes is a straight enough answer. We have misled, or mislaid is actually how it writes it. I guess that maybe mm-hmm. that is a word. What evidence we could, but you will come across more than you have already. Some facts accepted in our time. And it goes into some more stuff, which I'll read. But they're claiming here that they are the ones who went into the past and went to that library. If you remember when they went to this library, Mm. they found that somebody else had been looking for the same information for the same time period. So they are claiming responsibility. That's what that means. So, facts accepted in our time. One, if a person is to physically travel in time, then they must take the living place of a person at the point of destination and vice versa. Imagine a set of scales balanced perfectly with pebbles to remove a pebble and it says with eg pebbles like it's an example but they only give one to remove a pebble from one dish to the other and keep this perfectly balanced you must instantaneously remove a pebble from the other and replace them in reverse order you may move a couple of pebbles already and that's a couple uh pebbles already (laughs) in the dish voice to text (laughs) yeah yeah maybe it is But the vital balance is still kept. If someone is brought in from another dimension, then again the same procedure applies. 2. Matter will not, as we know, ever travel in time. This is not a contradiction to the info above. 3. We are not in control of this experiment. 4. Thomas is a person living in the 16th century, but unknown to him he is not quite what he seems to be. Ken. Is there a possibility that you may persuade Thomas to call up this chap, one, tonight, 
as it is imperative that we speak to him immediately. 2109. Any thoughts? No. I'm just listening along. I mean, do, do you have any anything you want to express about that? No. I don't have much more to add to it. I think their language is very interesting. The way they're trying to explain things and their theories about how this stuff would work. The part that I talked about with uh, Dr. Hasseltine sort of privately was what they, what 2109 eventually says, which is that moving through time would require so much energy and would pull, sort of pull on the fabric of time space to the point that it would be destructive to planets and solar systems and galaxies, which is sort of what he was saying. You have to find a way to overcome the, the, uh, speed of light limitation what the hell do i know but i would like to think that by 2109 if that's in fact a year that they're coming from they maybe wouldn't have time travel uh, you know as we know it or as we you know kind of picture it but that they may have some form and they, they may be at least at least a lot closer to it and would understand, you know, if we have minds like Dr. Hasseltine working on this stuff, it, it, it can't take too long. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, the way that they deal with time travel reminds me a little bit of Stargate universe. Mm-hmm. I think is what that show is called. They only ran for like one season. It was very good though. I thought they find a Stargate address that has an additional symbol they end up eventually figuring out what they're supposed to do, and they go to this new location. They find out that it's a ship that was sent out by the ancients that created the Stargates uh-huh. millions of years ago as a scout ship, and they put a Stargate on it with the idea that whenever it got far enough out, they would use the gate to get to it, but they mm-hmm. ascended or went extinct before that ever happened. Mm-hmm. So they're stuck on this ship, and they find a way to communicate through these ancient devices where it allows them to swap consciousnesses with somebody on Earth. Mm. So this kind of thing is, it exists in uh, in pop culture, in sci-fi at least. So it's only a matter of time, really. I mean, everything we talk about, people question or you know sometimes even laugh at, but we're dealing with a you know, an unknown timeline. So given enough time, anything's possible. So SPR is going to get involved again. And the idea for their experiment is to ask a series of questions. And they're going to try a different experiment where it seems like what they want to do is leave a message on the screen for about 40 minutes and then delete it. Mm -hmm. So that nobody except the person who wrote it would know what it was. And it would eliminate some of the hoax theories right and the plan is to have spr come and do this soon and they have their own precautions that they're going to take but lucas and some of the other entities that respond sometimes respond much later to questions than when they're asked they're not necessarily going to find an answer right away and that's a that's a little bit of a concern for ken he's Mm -hmm. kind of been irritated so far that they pretty much never get responses when they really want them right like they're they're not very convenient so in chapter 32, we're focusing on 2109 and this experiment. So Dave from SPR comes. Uh, he's been suggesting more theories about how this could be happening, such as the messages being sent through the mains earth wire. 
meaning the uh, little third plug at the bottom of a three-prong plug. Okay. That's just for ground. That's to send excess power to, you know, safely away from your computer so it doesn't build up and cause damage or electrical shocks. Right. It's not possible to do that, but it's something that they suggest, probably because computers are pretty new and people don't really know how they work. Yeah. It's just not it's just not possible. But they do try their experiment. They leave the message on there. They've locked the kitchen. They've also put tape around the window so it would be obvious if somebody disturbed any of it. And they use some sort of cowl or cover around the screen so nobody could watch through a window or a skylight to see what they're typing or what's left on the um what's left on the screen, what the message is. There's no way somebody could just peek in through the window. They're they're Road yeah. scholar cat burglar can't sit on the roof and look. <laughs> Nothing happens initially as usual, but after some period of time, and they're not clear on how long that is, responses do appear, and they don't make any sense to Ken. But he calls Dave to let them know what they said, and Dave confirms that they had not necessarily answered the question, but had addressed everything he said in the correct order. Hmm. And they think that this is finally proof that everything has really happened. Mm -hmm. Dave gives more questions, but this time he allows Ken to put them in himself. He's not being secretive about it, so it seems like maybe he's starting to accept. Mm -hmm. He asks about the largest prime number and about a Fermat, Fermat? I want to say Fermi equation, but I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it. It's F-E-R-M-A-T, I believe. I know there's the Fermi paradox, but I don't really know any. I mean, I, I just remember hearing that term. I don't really know anything about it. The Fermi paradox is about alien life. Okay. Uh, this is different because I thought it was the same thing. But yeah, this is a mathematician from the 1600s. Okay. He created this really complicated equation that I'm not going to try to explain and then hypothesize that someday in the future we'll be able to solve it. Okay. So they're saying, prove that you're advanced. Mm -hmm. SPRR. They're saying, prove that you're advanced. Solve this equation. Find a larger prime number than this. Whatever. They're, they're testing them. Mm -hmm. The response, they're saying that they'll answer, but the group, Ken, Dave, SPR, the... Scoob in the gang. <laughs> The whole Mystery Machine crew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they have to swear to grant their wish. Hmm. And they all think about this for a while, and Dave responds, if it would be in our power to do so, and that we do not lose our minds or souls or bodies to you. So they're very careful about what they're doing. Smart. And yeah. this definitely seems like a precaution against something supernatural. For sure. And we've already seen some things that 2109 has said that suggest that they're not human mm -hmm. that they feed on energy and they exist in a way that we wouldn't understand and we're not sure if they're if they're good or bad or indifferent right yet well, either so they respond let the man who is willing to lose these step forward <laughs> Everyone takes a step back except for one person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Step back while pushing your front forward. So they're set. They're telling them be reasonable and to lose your soul is to lose all. 
But 2109 says, surely this would not bother David. Call our bluff. Hmm. But the whole gang, David included, chicken out. Mm-hmm. And the last response that they got from 2109 about this was talking about that they had their minds half made up. I think that they were thinking of what they wanted and what they were trying to do, but were not fully committed to it. That's my interpretation. Yeah, I can agree with that. Then they get another response saying, I hope you don't think we're laughing at you now. That would annoy you. We'll catch the bullets before you pull the trigger. Lots of love, 2109. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, really strange. Yeah. It's really sad. They have a dog. They have a dog that they wind up naming Lucas who dies. And there's a whole long passage about how Deb and Lucas kind of have this back and forth about it. And Lucas explains where his name came from, that name. He was saying that Lucas was the name of his mentor. And this guy wound up dying in prison later in his life. But he said that he was a greater man than his own father. And that he wished his father could have been on his level. But that he took the name Lucas because he wanted to be more like him. And he was like, this this is a good name for this dog because he fought. Mm-hmm. The dog had some kind of disease, but he said the dog fought for his life. And oh, Well, that's a relief, though. I thought you were going to say they're like, well... You can have the dog. <laughs> no, no. No, it's just, I don't know why it's part of this chapter, really. Chapter 33 is more hoax stuff with SPR, which is extremely frustrating. Even I'm tired of them saying that this shit's a hoax. So they're insisting that it has to be a hoax, that somehow the text is being transmitted, or that it's being saved to this EEPROM chip. And they're being analyzed by somebody else. I mean, they're they're talking about all kinds of things. Somebody's pulling the the memory, the short-term memory out, and somehow analyzing that to find what keys have been pressed. They're saying that somebody is setting up an elaborate microphone setup to try to hear the keys being pressed and determine what key was pressed <laughs> at what time by the sound of it. I think I might have talked about that before. They're throwing out all kinds of examples as to how this could be done when the explanation for the hoax is way more bizarre than actual communication with the future or different entities yeah. of the past it it becomes a problem in its own right and right that's what's what i see because they basically got 2109 saying that this is happening by accident sort of mm-hmm like they're they're sort of doing an experiment, but this is not something that's within their control, and it's just happening. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's that should be easier to accept than this whole hoax scenario. Yeah. Also, no explanation can be given for the language that's being used, except that someone must be doing it, and the group mm-hmm. is becoming really frustrated because Peter is the one who's the most well-read. Mm-hmm. And has the most information about the language of that time. And even he, as we talked about in the last episode, said that it would take him a week to come up with some of these messages. Yep. But they're getting responses within an hour a lot of the time. So again, his his explanation is more, what's more likely? Mm-hmm. This scholar is getting in here, sneaking in and doing all this stuff, or we're actually getting a message from somebody who really speaks like this. Yeah, maybe uh, Peter's time traveling. And he is going in there and, you know, they can't see him because it's in the past. I mean, 
<laughs> you know, it, it, there's a yeah, lot the, of holes in the hoax theory. Well, some of yeah, some of this hoax stuff is almost supernatural in itself. Right, right. Being able to transmit data through a ground wire. Yeah. Yeah, they essentially just won't accept it. John Bucknell at one point is pacing up and down and just saying this has to be a hoax because it has to be. Yeah, I hate that. It yeah. must be. Dun, dun, dun. So Lucas is now communicating mostly on paper, but a new message has appeared that's a little bit threatening on the last page of this chapter. They receive a message saying, I know your greatest fears. I know how to be a motive. I can interfere with all signal transmitting devices, including computers. I have the power to make you do exactly what is required. Are you angry? Very angry. I can make the computer non-communicable. All is not what it appears to be. You can't afford to be angry. Someone's in trouble. Wow. There are also messages in this from 2109 being upset with Bucknell. <laughs> that Bucknell thinks it's a hoax. Like, oh, you think we're a hoax? Can we do this? Can we do that? You know, can we be answering these questions and providing these explanations? And Well, if you truly believe it was a hoax, then put your money where your mouth is and say, yeah, you can have my body. Yeah. And if you won't do that, then you're not really sure. Yeah, I and I hate that I keep remembering this stuff out of order a little bit, but I believe in the last chapter or maybe early in this chapter, they do find it's sort of a side note that they find this communication on the screen. And I'll I'll probably have to take a picture of the page and send it to you. Mm-hmm. But it's it looks like a form. It starts off 2109, and then it says it's got these numbers that maybe look like coordinates. Uh Then it says irrecoverable. And then it says state. Reason for your pretext state. What prerequisite you intend. State. Logical explanation for intrusive behavior upon 1985. This is not your concern. Request. Com.link62. Plot.chan. Like computer code. Okay. But it seems like they're somehow receiving internal communications or things that would be code on whatever systems 2109 are using or coming through as text. Okay. It's really odd. Yeah, just a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, it's like uh, it reminds me of when I would write a program in college Mm -hmm. and something would break and instead of just running the code, it would start outputting it in a visual way. Hmm. Like it would just return it as text. Mm-hmm. Like a really simple program would be to take two numbers that you enter and multiply them. Mm-hmm. But if you don't write it correctly, instead of doing the multiplication and just giving you the answer, it'll write, you know, this times this, it might just print that out. And that's kind of what this looks like. Gotcha. But it's, it just hints to there being a bigger world or conspiracy beyond this which is always what makes things feel more interesting and more real i guess yeah the idea that this is not just uh it's not just limited to the phenomena we're experiencing through these people Mm -hmm. anyway the next chapter is only a couple of pages there's a new spr person who arrives named nick Find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. 
Nick is described as being a large, competent man, about 35 years old. And Ken seems to believe that he may be John's superior at SBR if they do adhere to a hierarchy. Right. I don't I don't know what kind of structure they really have. John is still John Bucknell is still insisting that this has to be a hoax. So they asked to take the computer away and let them look for a bugging device or examine the EEPROM chips or whatever else. Mm-hmm. So they do. I mean, they're being super cooperative. Yeah, very cooperative. And they keep calling them back in, but they're, and they don't want to anymore. They're, they're kind of tired of it, but they're saying if we just tell them to go away, they're just going to think that this was all a hoax. True. And that we're just giving up because we couldn't get them to believe it. And, but yeah, they talk about the recording device idea that somehow somebody is telling what keystroke was pressed, but there's no explanation as to how this would be possible or how you could possibly decode what these keystrokes would be by the sound quickly enough to respond as a 15th century person. Yeah. After breaking into the room, it just, it's so fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, they do include one passage here. That's kind of interesting about the activity and it's Frank Davies. Who's a friend of Ken's. Mm-hmm. He had been at the cottage and was alone there at one point. And he noticed that Ken's name had been written out in chalk on the floor while he was in the room, but he didn't notice it. Hmm. Ken was actually the one who noticed when he came back into the house. I don't know what to make of that. Most of the activity takes place when Deb is there by herself. Yeah. But they're now finding writing in the room when they've been in there with it, which is pretty strange. Mm. They also have another message from Lucas saying that he's afraid of SPR's involvement, that he might lose his friends and his ability to talk to them if they wind up taking the computer away, mm-hmm. which they do. But they leave their own, and they leave it with a message, but no monitor hooked up. And 2109 has said before that they have no need for a display or a monitor or anything like that, and it's essentially just another test. While they examine Ken and Deb's computer, they're leaving their own to see if 2109 response to their message without any way of a human being able to interface with the computer and see it. Gotcha. 35 is another super short one. They get a response from 2109 asking about Nick and trying to find Nick's full real name. Mm-hmm. There's something about him they claim that disrupts communication. We've kind of heard this before. Lucas and them have found that certain people being around the computer makes it harder for things to work. Mm-hmm. And... They're, they're concerned about history being altered. Sure. They said that there's something about this guy that they need to know, that there's something that they need to do. And there have been examples in the book of them being able to get information about people fairly easily. 2109 at one point asks for Frank Davies' doctor's name and address, which Ken is unwilling to provide, but Frank is there, so he gives it back. like gives it Gives them the information that they're looking for, and they come back with, what he says is an accurate and complete medical history on them. Don't know how they're able to get that from a name and an address, but somehow they are in pretty quick order. Quick enough that Frank Davies is still there gotcha. because he's he's not part of the group that usually hangs around, which is why I, I may not have mentioned it before. Right. SPR does provide the guy's full name. It's Nick Sowerby Johnson. They say that they're not able to get the disk drive to work. They haven't been able to check on anything. So there's not 
a ton going on with SPR's research into their computer. You're talking about into Ken and Deb's computer. Right, yes. Okay. Yeah, they're basically saying we've got your stuff, but we haven't really been able to get anything to work right or look into it. Ken has been... There's honestly a lot towards this part of the book where Ken's just whining. So trying to pick through that is a little bit tedious. Yeah. He gets a new job, which is great. Whatever. Uh, And we do have a couple little tidbits that pop up. Vertical Plane, which I think I mentioned before. I think this is where he actually mentions where he got the idea that a vertical plane, like a vertical plane being intersected... He's visualizing time as a vertical plane with a spiral stair going through it. So Mm -hmm. in one side, back out the other, back in the other side. And he's visualizing that maybe this is how time is supposed to work. So every once in a while, if you're looking the right way or in the right spot, you're catching a glimpse of somebody else on those spiral stairs. Right. So that seems to be where the name came from. I think I mentioned in the last one, but I believe this is the actual chapter where he talks about it. And it's just a, an offhanded thought. Kind of bizarre that he names the book this with how little emphasis is placed on this. Mm-hmm. So there are more random messages and pieces of messages and pieces of arguments that seem to be appearing. There are some between the character 1 in 2109 where they're arguing back and forth. One is making fun of 2109's English, saying that it's terrible and he'll they'll barely be able to keep up with him if they want to try <laughs> to challenge him. You know, he's talking shit. It's like he's in a cod lobby or something. <laughs> I mean, he's not he's not dropping some of that language, but right. yeah, he's he's giving him trouble. There there also are messages yeah, and there are also messages that come through that seem to be status updates. Kind of like the code that I read just a little bit ago. You know, things that go along with this. Why are you interfering with 1985? This is not your concern. Stuff mm-hmm. like that. Also, we find out that uh, I did not understand this in Lucas' original message. But the computer in Lucas's time has a green glow around it. I think I did describe it that way. But when yeah. I was originally reading this, I didn't un- I didn't understand exactly what he was saying. But the person called one has that same glow. Huh. And I didn't really understand what he was talking about. He was just saying that he had a glow like the Leems Boist, which is what he calls the computer. But I realized what he meant when he's, he basically says that he doesn't trust 2109. He also doesn't trust one. And he says he doesn't trust someone who glows green. <laughs> so I don't trust that's the like. Center for Cyclical Research either. You know, it, it's like yeah, they, the they all, yeah, they all have a uh, kind of a vest, vested interest. And I do notice that, like paranormal, and I don't know any about anything about this group you're talking about, but I do notice that you know when you talk about like paranormal investigation groups, they're like, oh, this person has this as, you know, their status. And it's like, well, that's not real. You know, do you understand what I'm saying? Like video expert. Well, what makes you a video expert? Like you've worked with mm. video a lot or you actually like went to school for it. You know what I mean? Like it's unimportant for the story, I guess. But yeah, they I would like to know what these people's credentials are, too. But 
Yeah, I agree. The way that they propose such impossible solutions to be like, oh, well, this is simple. Mm-hmm. They're doing that. They there's somebody hiding in the gas tank of your car, and that's how your car is somehow just driving on its own. Sometimes <laughs> it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense either. Right. I mean, that makes as much sense as saying that information is being transmitted to a specific program and saved to a disk by a ground wire. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's just throwing shit at the wall and seeing if something will stick. Seeing if somebody's going to call you out on your bullshit. That's what it is. <laughs> All right, there are more problems with the experiment getting into the next chapter. The 2109 is still contacting Ken, asking the pass information to SPR. It really starts to seem by this point we're about 75, 80% done with the book, with the story. Mm-hmm. And it seems like 2109 is almost using them to communicate with certain groups and certain yeah. people. So they, they're not sure how the messages are coming through. This is SPR. And... Uh, 2109 is also not sure if their messages are coming through correctly and that they think something might be wrong. So they're trying to figure out what the problems are. I find this really interesting that 2109 is trying to troubleshoot things. Mm-hmm. They're, they're basically getting to like, well, did you try turning it off and on again thing? <laughs> you know, try looking at your spam folder, stuff like that. They want confirmation of the things that they've received. And they are also, again, asking Ken and them not to communicate with Lucas on paper anymore. And they suspect that this is because 2109 is not able to influence the messages if it's done on paper. Exactly. They don't stop. They still talk to him. Lucas still doesn't trust any of them. You know, it could still be up in the air for Lucas, too. He he could be like, man, maybe this is witchcraft that's taking place here. You know, he's... Yeah. It's a lot easier for people in 1985 to understand people in 15, uh, what'd you say, the 1520s? 1520s to 1540s, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot easier for people in 1985 to understand people from the 1520s than it is for people from the 1520s to understand people from 1985, I, I would assume. Yeah, and Lucas is being asked to pass along messages. There's... They, they get to a point later in the book where they're including somewhat fewer of the messages that are coming through, so it's a little bit hard to, I guess, hold on to what they're trying to talk to or track it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. All right, so there's a lot of confusion, which is kind of why I stopped, because even following my own notes can get kind of difficult. Yeah. But... We said Lucas does not trust 2109, but he's agreeing to help them pass messages along and things like that. Mm-hmm. He's agreeing to do some of the things that they're asking of him, kind of like Ken and the folks from 1985 are doing, because they want the communication to continue. 2109 earlier in the book explained how communication through time worked. Mm-hmm. They essentially said to imagine two people standing on mountains facing away from each other okay you if they speak they wouldn't be able to but did i explain it on here or did i i know i talked about it with dr hasseltine oh shit i don't know just go ahead apologies in case i'm explaining this again but 2109 had said to imagine two people standing on two mountains facing away from each other and the only way to get sound to the other would be to echo it off another mountain Mm -hmm. so they're implying that they're 
trying to find the right way to echo messages through time. And that's why they're getting the people that they're getting. It's sort of incidental that sometimes Ken can see messages that are clearly not intended for him. Mm-hmm. Or snips of communications with other entities or bits of communication where one is taunting them or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, it feels like it's adding more realism to it. Because who would come up with that? I mean, I know, like, Bill Burr, I think, had this joke where he's talking about people who hear these fantastic stories and they're like, well, who could come up with that? Right. Like, you can't make that up. And he's like, what about Star Wars? Somebody made that up. That's pretty fantastic, too. <laughs> yeah. But still, it does. It just all seems so unlikely to be a hoax. It's There's such depth to it. Whoever did this would have to be so creative if it was a hoax. They would, they would be able to write their own, like, Tolkien-type stories. Right. If they're able to come up with all this background and drop these little hints like that, mm-hmm. it's masterful. It is. It might be the greatest hoax ever pulled, except for voting. (laughs) Are you saying that Democratic elections are... I just agree with Mark Twain, that's all. Chapter 37, more exchanges of messages between 2109, Ken, Thomas, Ken, and a lot of talking. (laughs) (laughs) But the most important thing is they finally realize that through one of their messages with Lucas, he has three weeks left. Mm-hmm. Three weeks before he has to leave his cottage. Because if you remember, he was forced to sign a deal with Grovner several chapters, many chapters ago, mm-hmm. to sell his land. So he has three weeks to get out, and they're assuming that they won't be able to communicate with him anymore because the the computer seems to be tied to the location. When he was in prison... The computer still existed in his house, but he was not able to use it at all. It didn't like come with him to the dungeon. Right. right. So this is around November first, with which lines up with an earlier message from twenty one oh nine saying that they would have till at least November to talk to him. And they start asking him for all this clarification. They ask him what these different words mean. They're even talking through, and they're talking through written, you know, handwritten stuff now. Mm-hmm. And they start asking him about some of his earlier letters. They they have printouts and they, I don't know if they leave the printouts because they can do that or they just write it out as a message to him. Mm-hmm. But they're asking him about what his original message meant where he's talking about Edmund Gray and, you know, these lights that only a king could afford and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And his response translated into more modern English says good Ken please forgive my words to paper as I think they may be removed if 2109 see them mm-hmm. the words your maid showed me are not altogether what I said though they are all my words they are jumbled the words on Edmund Gray I didn't write though these words are like mine the first script said as follows I speak to you that you will answer Why do you keep me awake at night with this device that does shine at me like devil's teeth? (laughs) Your words make me think that you are uneducated and you are from overseas, as your manner is strange to me and you have many costly things that only the king can afford. This device is causing me some difficulties. I am concerned it will harm me. Why are there people walking through my house? They are welcome, but why can't they see me? 
Why do you move all my possessions around my house and break the boundaries that I am surrounded by? I cannot allow you to persuade me to leave my house unless you explain your intentions. Yeah. They're finding that the second message that they got was entirely fake. And we're going way back. Necessarily the first one, the, uh, the one where they're saying turn, turn towards the sun, all that stuff. True are the nightmares of a person that fears, that sort of stuff. They're talking about, yeah, the message where he says, what strange words you speak. Although I must confess that I too have been badly educated. Sometimes it seems changes are somewhat obstructive. For many a time they disturb me sleeping in my bed. There are the first couple letters like that they're finding have been altered significantly. Either altered or completely rewritten or completely faked. Mm-hmm. And they're taking this to mean, or they're taking it as an explanation as to why later in their communications. Uh, the the messages seem to get more clear, more coherent. Right. They're thinking that, okay, the more 2109 lets go, the more the communication comes through unaltered. If they're having trouble with his English, 2109 might be having trouble. So when they're trying to alter things and obfuscate who they're dealing with, it's just making it more and more cryptic, more cryptic than it needs to be. Yeah. And they're throwing in references like Edmund Gray, which... Lucas says he never wrote that. So they're putting in figures to try to get them to research it that they're not going to be able to find. There are still communications that they're seeing that they're probably not supposed to see. There's a message, for instance, that appears to be from one. It's addressed to 2109. It says, poor, poor Jack in the Box. What will he do without a spring? Now he'll never be able to perform for the children. Oh, and how the children will cry. I think the next one is supposed to be a response. There's not a clear break, but it appears to be a response. Okay. One, we presume, cut the cryptic. You're too obvious anyway, trying to play the brave Samaritan, A, eh? Revert to cipher. You're just conf- confusing 1985E. They know not to trust you. And it's even one's language. The reason I'm assuming that these are supposed to be direct responses the second part of it has all the same misspellings that 2109 always has. Like, your is spelled Y-O-A-R. Okay. Things like that. It, there are very consistent spelling issues and grammar issues that 2109 always has where one writes in a much more modern way. A 1985 way? Yeah. And he says, uh, <laughs> your English is appalling... Don't you have any other purpose than to lecture this kind <laughs> with existentialism and quantum physics? What a meaningless existence. But if cipher, then cipher it is, if you can keep up with me. And then there's another message that says, not this frequency range. Hmm. So almost like someone or something realized that it was being seen still and telling them, like, stop communicating this way. And you would think if there was a hoax, there'd be no reason to throw... This wrenching. Right. And then, I mean, the only ones that make sense to do the hoax are Ken and Deb. Mm-hmm. Deb is still talking about by this chapter that she's been seeing Lucas, that she's realized that if she just kind of puts herself in this almost hypnotic trance, that she can now 
sort of just will herself to appear to him the way before she was doing in her dreams. Mm-hmm. Remember, she would have dreams where she would just be in his house and he would stand up and try to talk to her and she would freak out and wake up. Yeah. And then he would write letters saying, why, why does your, why is your girl not talking to me? (laughs) (laughs) Now she's able to do it willingly. And Lucas is trying to get them to visit him, both of them Mm -hmm. to both appear to him that way. And Ken's just such a baby. He's such a baby. He tries to do it for a second. Then he's like, this is stupid. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm going to bed or I'm going out for a drive or whatever else. Well, that almost says to me that he, I mean, that's kind of a point for him being part of a hoax. If he's like, oh, this is stupid. I'm not going to do it. Or, yeah, but it also goes pretty well with the fact that when he went to Bristol or no, no, sorry, it wasn't Bristol. It was uh, Leicester, Leicester Square. He went to that occult bookshop. Mm-hmm. And he chickened out from buying the book because oh. he was afraid of what people would think of him. He's like, I'm not the kind of person that buys this hokey stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. So okay. maybe a social pressure thing from, you know, England almost 40 years ago. I, I would agree that it definitely, he's not willing to try some of this stuff. So, but it's not SPR that's asking him to do it. It's Deb. Sure. He, he even does, I mean, he tries it for a second and he does get a message from Lucas saying, that he saw him. Hmm. He was like, oh, you, you came to visit, but um, it's such a shame you couldn't stay longer. Next time you'll have to hang out a little longer so you can try my ale and my meat. And, you know, and he wants, to, he wants to hang out. I hide in my hat. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it's my weed. Yeah. <laughs> Catherine was my weed, man. It's the, it, maybe it's, you know, ayahuasca or something. I don't know. Maybe it's part of how he communicates. Mm-hmm. We're almost 300 pages into this at this point. Okay. It's a long story. And it's, again, this is November of 1985. Mm-hmm. This started around November or December of 1984. Right. It's a hoax. Who... Who would be committed to riding in the style of the 1500s, breaking into somebody's house over and over within hours of them writing messages? This would be a full-time deal for a team of people trying to do this for a year. Yeah. So this being a hoax really doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Chapter 38 is another one of these really strange ones. It's two pages long. I like those chapters. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they're finding out that more about the messages that were faked. The message about Tom or Lucas slash Thomas visiting Chester and Mantwich was fake. One of the messages, it was the one where he mentioned Liverpool. Okay. Where they had thought it was strange that he was comparing Chester to Liverpool. Saying why, you know, somebody in a modern day might make a comparison like that to say that Chester at this time is as big as this other port. Sure. And they're saying, why would somebody from the 1500s think to do that? Because if they're the same, if they're similar, you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't point out that they're the same. Mm -hmm. But this is, he's saying that this is a message that he didn't send. Gotcha. He's, yeah, he's, he's essentially just telling them that either the message is fake or it's a message that I sent, but it's been messed with. They're just using words like mine and some of these fake ones. They're also finding that this could potentially be an explanation of the use of modern punctuation and modern 
conventions and writing Mm -hmm. and some of the language problems that they noticed early on that made them think that this had been a hoax and Mm -hmm. also to explain this sudden decline in these errors over time. They theorized that as 2109, like I was saying earlier, stopped interfering, the messages started coming through more and more like they were supposed to, which made them look more and more right to Peter. Mm-hmm. Ken is still being a baby, <laughs> and 2109 wants to get Nick in front of the computer saying that they could trace him better if he had actually physically been there. Hmm. But they never really give much of an explanation as to why that is getting into the next chapter. There's not a ton that happens. A lot of whining and whinging. Deb goes to Oxford to meet with the librarian that had helped them before, but fails to run into him. I guess they didn't make arrangements ahead of time and there's no cell phones aren't common. Right. So it's like an episode of friends or Seinfeld where most of the problems are because you don't have a phone. (laughs) Right. Uh, she's trying to take pictures of historical stuff and just kind of have one of our own little Ken style adventures, but it doesn't really work out too well. But I, you know, they still, it, it's the chapter is a lot about them dealing with the stress of it all and trying to quickly run through as much as they can with, with Lucas before they lose touch. Mm-hmm. So they do have a message when they get back from their trip. Ken meets Debbie at the station and brings her home. And when they hook it up, they have a new message that is un... It, it's not apparently a response to anything else. Okay. And it says, John, Nick, and David. Your reason is not a good one, but never mind. If it was a hoax, then would I speak with you now? Recognize that I exist without numbers, color, or sound. Therefore, any questions relative to these are no use to you. One is a great power that must be obeyed and answered if he should if he should call. Hmm. I will give no instructions as you are of no matter what you say. Hmm. As you are of no matter what you say. I may obstruct if this is my desire. Think, is your life really lived when you are awake or asleep? You only know what is true when you can consciously be in both all you believe is your reality alone. So, really strangely written, I think what they're saying is these SPR guys don't matter. Mm-hmm. They just don't care about them. Yeah. That they'll kind of do what they want. They'll obstruct their messages if they desire. You know, are you really living your life? You. It seems to me like they're saying that they don't understand the scope of reality. Mm-hmm. When I was reading that last part, all you believe is your reality alone. It reminded me of Star Trek The Next Generation. Okay. Where Q... Q is kind of lecturing them. Q is this godlike entity that appears throughout the series for anybody who's not familiar with it. And there's a point where Q is lecturing Picard and saying that you're here on this trek through the stars... While you should really be exploring the possibilities of existence. That's kind of what I get from this. You're you're only understanding your reality that you can see when you're awake. And not considering other possibilities. That your dream world is something else. That there are other types of existence beyond your everyday experience. Next, (laughs) moving on from our, what, three-page chapter? Ken and the gang are offered a break. 
which is really odd and uncharacteristic, in my opinion, of 2109 to say that they can give them a break. <laughs> they they're basically coming through and saying, "I think everybody needs a little bit of time off." But they don't want to do this because Lucas has such little time left. Remember, we're in November, and he's got the first, I think, three weeks in November to stay in that house and be able to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. 2109 claims that they are able to stop time for Lucas. That the 1985 group can take two months, and for Lucas, no time will have passed. It'll still be... He'll still have his two or three weeks left, whatever it is. So they agree. This was around the 10th of November, and they started looking into releasing some of this information to the press. Mm-hmm. And part of this seems to be what 2109 wants. And there is a scan of a page from the Chester Observer from the 20th of December, 1985, that discusses this. But it basically says, Tudor printouts baffle the experts. And the the header at the top says, Computer's eerie link with the past. And it's written by a columnist or journalist named Neil Barglum. Love Neil Barglum. But this is the start of... (laughs) This is the start of their press coverage. And they're really concerned about it at first because they're in a small town. I mean, I'm concerned about stuff too. I'm in a town of about 24,000. Mm-hmm. And it's still super common for me to run into people I've met before or people I know. I mean, 24,000's small. But I'm assuming massive compared to Doddleston in 1985. You would think. So I totally get it. Their next chapter is still mostly concerned with Debbie and Lucas. She's talking more about visits with him and how these interactions work. Mm -hmm. She talks about going into one of her trances and appearing to him. She's visiting with him on his farm, and she ends up walking around the farm with him, trying to catch chickens and get his stuff ready to clear out since he's supposed to move. There's a new cook there who's not able to see Debbie, and the chickens don't like her. She notices pretty quickly that she's walking around and the other people don't notice her, don't see her. But when she gets close to animals, they freak out. That's interesting. Yeah. There's somebody at one point who rides up on a horse to the house. The rider does not acknowledge her. Thomas go- Thomas slash Lucas goes first to meet the guy. Mm-hmm. And when she comes up, she just notices that he doesn't look at her. He doesn't seem to notice that she's there. But the horse is spooked. The horse immediately knows something is up. So she's basically a ghost. Yeah. But she's not dead. Mm -hmm. And again, it's so interesting because I really don't know how prevalent these ideas were back in 1985. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, stuff wasn't accepted. So it didn't get out. Now there's avenues like our podcast for people to come on and talk about things that you know maybe aren't considered hard science right this second but you know to not get laughed at by everybody because yeah we do realize there's some things that were previously thought impossible that are not possible right that's exactly what i was thinking 
we talk about in this story how when they wanted information about Poltergeist, they had to go to a different city to a special bookshop. Right. But nowadays, anybody who has a theory about anything can write a blog, they can do a podcast, they can make a YouTube channel. These ideas can get out there. Yeah. And then the commonalities that seem to indicate truth, like dogs and cats and horses and whatever else can seem to perceive things that we can't. Mm-hmm. Those things come out. You know, you right. read them in a thousand different sources, and it's, well, maybe that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what you hear it so many times, it must be the truth. Yeah. So they also find a chalk message on November 14th, which disappears on its own on November 15th. Mm-hmm. And they did take notes on it, and... Yeah, so it's laid out in a weird way. It's kind of like chunks of text. So I'm going to try to read it in the order I think makes sense. There's a chunk up top of text that appears on this column written in chalk that says, The eyes are open, yet nothing do you see. Below that, it says, The gray retarding mass, and then to the side is your convict. I don't know if it's conviction or convict. I would assume convict. Quietly, alone, he sits in the dark waiting for sentence to be passed and demanding through the eyes of the blind of unspoken questions to answers of ethereal kind. So this is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven chunks Mm -hmm. of text. And that seems to be the way you're supposed to read through it. The eyes are open, yet nothing do you see. The gray retarding mass is your convict. Quietly alone, he sits in the dark, waiting for sentence to be passed, and demanding through the eyes of the blind of unspoken questions to answers of ethereal kind. No idea. Yeah. No idea what this is supposed to be. I think sometimes people are cryptic when they're not as smart as they think they are. Does that make sense? It's by accident. Yeah. Yeah. Like you think you're being deep, but really your shit doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I have that problem. (laughs) I can relate. (sighs) So the next chapter, another one that's super short. The article gets published in another paper and it's, they're describing that they wanted to put it on the first page, Mm -hmm. but they convinced them to push it back. So it's on page seven of the local newspaper. A lot of people in the town seem to be aware of it, and it contains uh, part of an interview with somebody. The article is put out on page 7 of this local newspaper, because they were able to convince them not to put it on page 1. And the author, Neil, was able to get a hold of John Bucknell. And it's it's funny that it's the last time they ever hear from John through this interview. Hmm. And his whole thing is basically just saying that he is absolutely convinced that there is a human agent behind this and that it's essentially all a hoax. He says that they did not analyze the language because they assumed it's not outside the realm of possibility that somebody could figure out how to write like this. So it wouldn't really prove anything. It, there's a lot of Ken in the group just expressing their frustration. Yeah. That he saw these cases 
and never filed a report. Mm-hmm. Never filed any report. Oh, he just said it has to be a hoax. There's nothing really going on here. And they also find that he left SPR in 1986. So at this point, they're basically deciding that we're going to wait till his report comes out, and then we'll try to question it and whatever. We'll figure it out then. But they're never able to get a hold of him again. He just disappears from the story and is in, like just out of communication entirely after that. Wow. Yeah, which is, again... Unusual. Yeah. Over the next couple chapters, it's mid-January of 86, and they're set to resume communication with Lucas. They reached out and received a message back from 2109 asking if they were ready. Ken is talking about having car trouble. He sold his Jag and got an Opal that was having problems. He had just started a new job, and they said that they weren't really ready, so they delay it by another month. It's like they're treating time travel like a snooze button. Yeah. Peter made a suggestion that maybe the messages are somehow being telepathically created by Ken. Hmm. Ken puts this question to 2109, and it's one of the first times, maybe one of the only times, that Peter suggests that maybe there's something to this other than just exactly what it seems to be. Mm-hmm. And it kind of bothers Ken. But the response that they get from 2109 says, then ask Peter why everything which appears on the screen does not please Ken. Pretty good response. Yeah. If the messages are all coming from Ken's mind, he probably wouldn't be so pissed about them all the time. Right. <laughs> 2109 also at this point asks them to find a ufologist named Gary M. Rowe, whose ideas are, his way of thinking is different than Ken's. Mm-hmm. but can help with some of the problems uh, that they're dealing with and help with this investigation. They include a phone number Ooh. and tell them that they should have Peter call him and tell him that they got the telephone number from a UFO enthusiast. And Ken is basically just pleased that he's not the one who has to make the call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very mm-hmm. sad. Uh, They're continuing to communicate by paper. Thomas thinks it's the best way. Ken and his group think that maybe it would be better to go back to the computer because it's faster, but Lucas is just saying, no, this, this, we know that they can't influence our communications this way. So let's keep doing this. Mm -hmm. And the writing is so strange. The style of it, the, the actual handwriting itself. It almost doesn't look like English. It's another thing I'll have to send you a picture of. Mm-hmm. It's so... Like maybe they learned, like, English writing isn't their first language to write in. Like, it appears to have, like, Sanskrit qualities or... Yeah, yeah, either that or just that it's a completely foreign style of writing. Mm-hmm. The way the letters are made, it seems like the primary marks are different than the way you would do it in a more normal modern English. Now, do you know if any of these chalk messages were written out in the style of, like, Old English? All of the handwriting was in the same way. 
All right, so I've texted you a picture of yeah. one of the first writing samples they have from Lucas. Definitely doesn't look old English to me, but... But it's very strange, isn't it? It's... Yeah, I mean, it, it almost looks like it's channeled writing. Like somebody's writing, like, automatic. Like automatic, yeah. Yeah, I got that. It's consistent. It's always that way. Seems like it would take a lot of effort to write that way on purpose if you were educated in a normal, or I should say a typical Western setting. Yeah, it doesn't look like any particular language. Like, it doesn't look like you could say, oh, this is how somebody who, you know, grew up writing this language would maybe write English. It, right. it is just very bizarre in general. And it looks like and Lucas, it, it says fuckas instead. Of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was a little tough to decipher Lucas the first time I read it like that. And there are points in this book where they have three or four pages of writing like this, much smaller than that, like much more intricate. Yeah, that would be very difficult. Yeah. Yeah, a lot more of this written communication... The computer responses tend to be longer and they're a little bit faster, but like I was saying, Lucas wants to continue communicating this way because he knows it can't be messed with. Mm -hmm. Peter gets in and he's just asking him historical questions, and some of them trip him up. They're talking about St. Paul Mm -hmm. at some point. Not a lot of the context is given, but apparently Lucas responds, Who beest St. Paul? Mm -hmm. And Peter says, like, somebody from the 1500s should know this. Mm-hmm. It would almost be heretical to ask who St. Paul was. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Lu- but Lucas comes back later saying that he just doesn't understand why this question is such a big issue. He's saying that what he was trying to understand is why St. Paul was being brought up. Yeah. Not exactly who he was or, you know, what what his importance or role is or however the context of the question was, but... That essentially, why are you bringing this up? Mm-hmm. And you could say, well, this explains it. But you could also say this is one of those situations where somebody who is part of the group in perpetrating this hoax could realize the mistake that they made and be trying to backpedal to recover. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think that that's less likely. But Yeah, I do too. So, chapter 46. This is an exciting one because we finally meet Gary Rowe. All right. They're able to get a hold of him, and they have a meeting with him to talk about all this, and he agrees to investigate and says that he will definitely come to some kind of satisfying conclusion. He has to set up some equipment to look for sounds or movements or, you know, basically your ghost hunting type stuff. Yeah. But says that he doesn't pick anything up during his visit and his initial investigation. What he asks to do is leave a a message on paper in a sealed envelope on top of the computer. Okay. They confirm with 2109 through their normal means that it did not need the message to be unsealed to be able to read it. And the message disappeared a day later. So they just left it sitting there overnight. A day later, it was gone. Dead damn burglar, man. <laughs> they then had a response on the computer and printed it. Okay. So 
a weird thing about this is the computer, the response on the computer, there's part of it that's addressed to Ken. And it's demanding that Ken print the files without looking at them, with nobody else present in the room. And when in some cases without a monitor being connected to the computer at all and without monitoring the printer to make sure everything worked right. Mm-hmm. He's told that he's supposed to immediately fold the paper, put it into a thick envelope that you wouldn't be able to see through or read through if you held it up to the light. Mm-hmm. Or failing that, to fold it, wrap it in another piece of paper and put it in an envelope and to write for Gary's eyes only read alone on the outside. Okay. They do this. They deliver it to Gary in his hometown, which is spelled R-H-Y-L. I think it's probably pronounced real. Mm-hmm. Ryle. I don't know. He is not very forthcoming with information. He gives them a response uh, to give back to 2109. Just basically, like he doesn't tell them what's in the letter. Mm-hmm. He just kind of reads it and is dismissive of it right away. And he says to tell 2109 that they had six days to answer his questions or he's done. Okay. When they meet again, they have another one of these communications for Gary, same kind of thing. And Gary's response was to give them a letter to type into the computer for 2109. Okay. Which obviously they're able to finally see at least some part of this communication. The letter indicates that Gary was instructed to apologize. To apologize to 2109 and to apologize to Ken and Deb. It, it's I can just read the, the letter to you. I actually do have it here. It says, Greetings. I am instructed to apologize, but in any event, I would have done so of my own volition. There will be a letter hopefully this weekend. I am also instructed to apologize to Ken and Debbie. I must try to answer your last letter. It would appear that you are more important than I had realized in the scheme of things, Gary. Hmm. So again, he's saying, I've been instructed to apologize. I've been instructed to apologize to Ken and Deb, but I would have done so on my own anyway. Hmm. Pretty weird. Yeah. Everything is so cryptic. It's, it's just yeah, it's, hard. <laughs> it's super fucking cryptic. Gary tells them that he would try to explain what's going on if they were a little further along the road, Mm -hmm. which they assume to mean that if they had more knowledge of whatever he was into, right? If they were further along this path of kind of getting into this world. I mean, it's like, it's like that thing that I say sometimes and I've heard other places that when you start looking at the phenomena, it looks back at you and you just get deeper into it. Yeah, for sure. But he's polite and firm in refusing to tell them anything more about what's going on or who's instructing him to do these things. Yeah. But that brings us to the final chapter. This is really a lot of a lot of letters and a lot of communication and a lot of feelings. At this point, this is spring. 1986, they've been communicating with Lucas since December of 1984, and their lives have been pretty much consumed by all this. Mm-hmm. They're emotional, but they're still just trying to confirm as much as they possibly can because they can no longer rely on SPR to try to validate anything for them. Sure. They're trying to confirm more things. 
there's a uh, there's a misunderstanding about the church because the church keeps pretty significant records. Mm-hmm. The church they found was a good source of records because okay. it goes back a pretty long way, and people generally don't mess with it too much. Mm-hmm. So there was a question that Ken describes as something that had irritated him about who was the parson of the church at that time. Okay. He had a parish-produced history of Doddleston, in which claims that Pennant, a man named Pennant, was rector. Okay. And in earlier communications before the the like three month break that they got, Lucas had said that a man named Cowley was the parson. Okay. And it's something that he's trying to question about again. So they're communicating more and more with Lucas, who is now consistently signing his stuff as Thomas. Mm-hmm. So very confusing if you just jump around in this book. But they're still trying to solve this rector issue. And it all came down to Ken. Parsons and rectors are not the same thing. He was mixing up the role of a rector and a parson. Apparently it seems that they maybe can be the same person mm-hmm. or the roles can be performed by the same person, but it's not necessarily Stinger. the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's probably something that I should have done some more research, but he's saying that Pennant is rector, but Callie is parson. He claims that he doesn't particularly like either of these people. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, he said that, uh, it's a very matter-of-fact statement, yeah. and it just comes down to a mistake that Ken seems to have made in his research and mixing up these roles. And it's totally possible that these are not roles that are really used by the church anymore. But he does uh, give them a little story, Lucas, that is, about how the computer first appeared. Okay. It's a letter that's in response to another one. It says, My brother Ken, I thank you for your words. They have given me base upon which to understand the leaves. I will now tell you what you might call an antic. Catherine was sleeping in the chimney seat, so I went over to pick her up and carry her to bed when I saw a green light shining from the walls of my chimney, and from this light stepped what I thought was the devil himself. I never feared for my soul so much in my life, but so afraid was I that I couldn't move away from this strange messenger. He said, Fear not, good Thomas. You are starred to be a great man, if you do not have fear, but keep your faith strong. Then after other words, which I do confess were not like devil talk, he was gone, leaving the leams which appeared to be the same as your computer. I immediately woke Catherine, but she didn't see the leams, nor hear me speak with a metaphysical person. But she said, you silly Thomas, were in your dreams. Now don't frighten me with your disturbed thoughts. So to mope I did, (laughs) for there shone the leams, but Catherine saw it not. I was so worried for my sanity that I spoke the Lord's Prayer all night, but it would not go, but sat with glee unseen by all but myself. 
Then two days afterwards, Catherine was singing in the chimney by the fire and the leaves, and I saw that her words appeared on it. So when Catherine went walking, I tried verses myself and other words and gained knowledge about the leaves. Do you want to know more about the leaves, Thomas? So he finally tells them that somebody brought it there. Huh. Someone brought it. Somebody appeared, told him, like, hey, G, you're going to be an important guy someday. Here's this for your day. And just left a computer there and left. <laughs> just left. Wow. And that they found out how to communicate with it by accidentally discovering that if you speak near it, it tries to transcribe what you're saying. Which is funny because you said earlier, these sound like voice-to-text mistakes. Mm -hmm. So apparently time travel has voice-to-text, and they use Siri for it because it kind of blows. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Anyway, this all, all of this final part take place in March of 1986. And culminates with a final letter. Well, final letters and uh, you know from a couple of them. But there's one from 2109 saying that the experiment has been concluded and thanking them for their cooperation. It also tells them what Thomas's slash Lucas's final fate were. So the last message from Lucas is... I think it shows a little of his feelings towards Deb still. Because it starts off, my true fellows and sweet maid. Grovner has said that Thomas must go. I know it is for the best because the people of Doddleston are very wary of me. Grovner says they will burn my old farm down and that except for him, all the village despises me. At least that is his view. It is good to know that all will change and there are true men to follow, like Ken and Peter, though 400 years is a long time and there is much to happen to mankind. It is sad that men must learn righteousness from their ugly ways, believing that they have to look for truth and ruthlessness and never follow a path that is for truth. I pray for my fellows at night that they are never imprisoned because of their love for their brother Thomas. Are we not true men? I say, woe to all you men who are not true, for you are marked by God. He will not have your company, but you will walk with the beasts of Tardis forevermore they translate that as hell mm -hmm. yes you that have no worth in this life i know that i mustn't sorrow for i cannot put these feelings to paper but you must know that i weep and am emotional i find it hard to write perhaps you will come to oxford now i think there is no danger for me there for i hear the king is very sick and all is quiet in the church I shall go by boat from Chester to Bristol. There I will buy a horse, for mine will not go on a boat. It is as scared of water as it is scared of fives, which is some kind of horse illness. I also weep for him. I shall try to make my stay at Bracenose, though I know I was expelled many years ago. I will write my book about my brothers and maid, and of the end of Lucas and the little puppy and of our love for each other. One day you will all sit down at my table for wine and meat, by the river in Oxford, where we shall read each other's books and laugh, and we shall speak of truth and good men, watching Oxford change together forevermore. In your time my book is old, but I shall not go to my God until it is written. Then we will all be truly embraced. My love to you all. I shall await you in Oxford. Thomas Harden. 
So pretty philosophical. Yeah, it is. I mean, it seems fairly genuine in its emotion. It does. For a hoax. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, you know, referencing that he'll get to meet them again one day. And yeah, uh-huh. it's very, you know, reminiscent of their time together. Yeah. All right, what's next? All right, next is the final message from 2109. Okay. Ken, Deb, Peter. True are the nightmares of those that fear. What you fear will be your reality if you let it. Believe in yourselves. Safe are the bodies of the silent world. As long as your kind cannot penetrate our world, we are safe. Turn, pretty flower, turn towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. But the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Knowledge will be your progress, but your kind are coming close to getting their fingers burnt. Indirectly, you may prevent this. Get out your bricks. Get ready to build. Write the book. Pussycat Pussycat went to London to seek fame and fortune. The cat went to visit the queen, but instead frightened a little mouse under the chair. Ultimately, London will be a significant place. Stick to your main aims. It doesn't matter how hard they seem to get. Do not be distracted by that tiny mouse that has a deceiving charm. Faith must not be lost. You all rely on each other's faith. There is another person to come. They will be the help we need. You will know them when they come. Thomas did eventually write his book and soon died, shortly after. He placed it in a secure place. It shouldn't take too many years to find it. Though he wrote it in Latin with the help of a friend that he met in Oxford, the inscription reads, Me writes this book in the hope that mine fellows will one day find this book. Then may our lands be not so distant. We will finish now. You have a lot of work to do. There is no need for you to write back as we will have gone. Thank you for your cooperation, 2109. That's a really bizarre way to end things. Yeah. Yeah, just like, okay, we're done. We're out. And that was the last of the messages? It's not the last of the story in total, but it's the last of the messages that are sort of directly relevant. So there, there is a postscript. All right. And essentially they're saying, like, we're, we're done. We're done with this whole thing. <laughs> they vowed never to set up a BBC computer in their house again, although they did do it one more time. They had people contacting them about the story. Mm-hmm. They had somebody who sent them a computer pr- printout saying to see Ken Webster signed 2105. And this message was delivered from Luxembourg. Some of the people they agreed to help or even meet with, but a lot of them wanted to have them investigate some phenomena or try to recreate it. Meaning like they wanted to come to Ken and Deb's house and try to right. do what SPR should have done. Mm-hmm. They're, they were not interested in doing all of that, and they really didn't want to do anything with this phenomena if it was concerning them. They tried reaching out to SPR to see if there were any reports published, and none were. They were informed in April of 1986. Uh, at that time, John Bucknell was already gone, and nobody had been able to contact him, and he had never filed any reports at all. They asked about Nick and Dave, the other two who were with him, and SPR reported that they had no knowledge of these people at all. So wait a minute. S- SPR 
is now saying that they have no idea what you're talking about when they refer that, to They said that they don't know. They said they don't know Nick and Dave. Oh. oh. They knew John Bucknell was sent, but they did not know the other investigators. They had no knowledge of them. They found out later on that SPR was still conducting some kind of research Mm -hmm. on some of the theories, and they suspected that it might have been out of embarrassment for the way John Bucknell behaved. His whole, well, this has to be a hoax because it has to be sort of Mm -hmm. attitude. But they found out that SPR had concluded that there was no way for a BBC computer without a modem to have been influenced or bugged in any of the ways that John insisted it must have been. The bugging couldn't work. The earth wire, ground wire couldn't work. The EEPROM thing where you take the that chip out and try to examine it. Yeah. None of that would have worked was the conclusion of SPR. And that's it. I mean, that's essentially it as far as the investigation goes. Mm-hmm. There, There is a little bit of a discussion about some of their communications with 2109 where they talked about time slips. They also talk about theories that it may require people who are sensitive or who we might call a medium to be in the right place at the right time to be able to link for these phenomena. Okay. Which could explain why Deb always had to be in the house, or almost always had to be in the house for this stuff to happen. And Lucas had to be near the computer on his end to make it happen. Like when he was in the prison, it didn't work so well, so they let him come home so it would work right. Mm -hmm. There... So the explanation that they included in the postscript from 2109 is it's a long it's a long message. Right. But I think it's worth reading. Yeah. There yeah, they sure. put the messages they're they're saying that this uh exchange happened on January 18th of 86. And 2109 tells them time UFOs and most other types of paranormal are in some way all connected. In certain geographical locations, there's what we call areas of convectual magnetism. These can be explained by the magnetic lines that run around the Earth. Imagine, if you will, circles running around the Earth clockwise. These are positive lines of magnetic force, or PLMF, and also circles running anti-clockwise around the Earth with negative Uh, magnetic force, or NLMF. When two opposite running lines are crossed, usually a permanent crossing rather than random, the light-time continuum is vastly distorted, so much so that a sensitive individual may witness what you may call a timescape. That is, a glimpse of a past event or that of a future event. Ah, we hear you say, but you said matter could not travel in time. This is true as if matter were to travel by physical motion, then mass around the moving object would be so dense that the Earth and most other celestial bodies in your solar system would be consumed or unbalanced in such a way that they would decay rapidly. Then how? Imagine again, please, a person from the future happily floating along in his silver spaceship crossing an area of convectual magnetism. All of a sudden, his instrument panel goes shaky. He may feel slightly dizzy or nauseous 
a green mist caused by apnospheric distortion, and that's what it says, ap apnospheric distortion, forms around the vessel. He will then probably fall into a trance, a state of such depths that his soul is squeezed through the light time gate and forced to project a physical mirror image of him or herself as a, and they said there's a word missing here, of their place-time origin in their immediate vicinity. This can occur sometimes for only several seconds and does only register for that individual's subconscious, but onlookers from the time which is broken into will witness the very physical sight and actions of this alien from another time. Then, totally by confusion, elaborate on the facts. We are not saying that there is no other life outside your planet. On the, contract, on the contrary, there is life elsewhere, but the above phenomena is the most usual, as space is infinite to the mortal, and the chances of another race coming across the Earth is not really in a bracket of probability. There was once a great philosopher who likened time to an infinitely high block of flats, each floor to represent events all piled on top of one another, vertically to represent the geographical location and laterally to represent event, each floor. A little correcting, finish after, unsigned. Yeah, I mean, the description makes sense of the infinite flats. but Yeah, so just to recap what they're saying, they're saying that time slips occur at a place where Earth's magnetic lines converge mm -hmm. typically at a permanent fixed point so a positive and a negative line of magnetic force cross the time slip appears to be caused by the person who is being seen they go okay. into a trance-like state and it says their soul is squeezed through this light time gate and forced to project a physical mirror image of themselves and their place and time of origin in their immediate vicinity. So they are somehow causing their surroundings to be projected in this way for a few seconds. Mm -hmm. And they're saying that this simply because of the vastness of space is the more likely explanation for things like UFOs that we see. And I find that to be a really, really compelling explanation. Yeah. Because of the matter of fact way they put it out there. I don't know, man. Uh, chat says they don't, that apnosteric is not a word. Yeah, I think it's one of those time-traveling Siri voice command things that didn't work right. Okay. I'm assuming it should be atmospheric. Yeah. But I wanted to point that out in case that word is something else, or maybe it's a word we don't use yet. I don't know. They make a lot of really bizarre mistakes in this and some of them seem to be on purpose and some of them don't but yeah they explain that time travel physically is dangerous if not if impossible because of the physical requirements we know that as speed increases essentially mass increases which is what causes the time dilation effect effect that hassle team was talking about and the folks listening to this will eventually hear about when we release that episode yeah um but yeah, that essentially time slips are totally possible. So what we see as cryptids and UFOs are most likely time slips, or what they what they refer to as timescapes. I don't know, man. That's pretty deep. 
I also found it interesting that they said from a mortal perspective, the universe is infinite. Mm -hmm. But from a soul's perspective, perhaps you could be anywhere at any time you wanted. Yeah, maybe. I mean, if you can project it through, yeah, through time, through space. I don't know. So, so does that pretty much wrap the story up? Yeah, for the most part, they do have a little bit of a. They're they're talking more and more about like geomancy and ley lines and things like that. They have an excerpt, a quote from a book. The book is Time Warps by John Gribben, but they quoted this Professor Jack Serfati as saying, I believe the gravitational distortion of space and time predicted in Einstein's general theory of relativity provides a possible explanation, scientific explanation, of precognition, retrocognition, clairvoyance, and astral projection, provided we accept the additional postulates that individual consciousness can alter the biogravitational field of a living organism and that the biogravitational field distorts the local subjective space-time of the conscious observer. I conjecture that distortions can be manipulated in such a way that the rate of time flow of the participator does not match the corresponding rate of time flow at the object being observed and influenced, and can in principle be so adjusted that the participator working within his local light cone samples universe layers. So they're saying that you can see it at the corner of your eye. <laughs> He's basically speculating that relativity could make it possible to explain a lot of this stuff if we accept an idea that human consciousness can alter gravitational fields and sort of exert a force against space-time. This all seems wow. like hooey to me. Unless I'm just too dumb to understand it. Yeah, it's it's rough. But that is the end of the story. That's the end of the postscript. There are two little passages at the end of that excerpt. Ken writes, but is this the same as being in another time? The task is beyond me, but I hope that someone will be interested enough, open enough, to explore further relationship between mind, the nature of the world we perceive, and time. For myself, I am hoping someone will find a book a friend left for me some years ago. Well, let's get on it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh my God, it would be so cool if they found that book. They even talk about it towards the beginning of it, that they, you know, they have to get their book out before somebody finds this. Yeah, I know where it's As at, soon as right? he mentioned it, they're like, we need to figure this out. We need to like get this out if we're going to do it, so that nobody thinks that we're just that we just read this one, yeah, and then decided to make our own to be the you know like this weird. Uh, oh my god, what was that movie? <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to be more specific. Tenet. Oh yeah, I've never seen it. Tenet has all this time travel shit where they can invert and suddenly they're experiencing time moving backward, and so causality doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they don't want people to see them as like having read this story that I communicated with somebody in the future. And then they write the book and they're like, I am the one from the future. Wow. <laughs> they're trying to avoid that, you know, that looking like a scam. Cause it totally yeah. would. Yeah. 
You know where that book is? Where? It's at uh, 41.9022 degrees north and 12.4539 degrees east in the basement of the Vatican. Oh, my God. That's where it is. That would actually make a lot of sense. He was imprisoned for talking about this stuff. Yep. That's where it's at, man. Tell That's me. actually a really good idea. Yeah, that's a good theory. The one that's more upsetting to me would be the idea that it's just gone. Yeah. My final thoughts are that it's got to be real. I, I mean, I'm not saying that there definitely was a person in the 1520s that had all these experiences. And I'm not saying that in the year or the place or whatever that 2109 was coming from was actually a real place. But I do believe that these events took place because I I also believe that maybe there's an entity, right? That's thousands of years old that could know how to translate and how to write in these tongues, if you will. And it could be that it was a demon or an ET or something that made all this happen, albeit one with a lot of time to kill. But yeah, no kidding. I don't. I'm throwing out hoax. Let's let's leave it at that. I'm throwing out hoax. I don't know exactly what happened or exactly how it happened, but I think that there's no chance that this is a hoax, even one carried out by Ken and Debbie. I, I just don't oh. see how it could be possible unless they did just, you know, years and years of research and prep beforehand. And if this was 2000, I would feel a lot differently. But since this happened, you know, before the internet, it's not, it's not something that I can conceive could be hoaxed. But yeah, that's all I really have. I mean, I, I have to believe that, you know, what they're saying in this book actually happened. And don't see how it could be a hoax. I agree. After reading it all, I agree because I was, I love the story, but Mm -hmm. there have been a lot of times where I've loved stories Mm -hmm. and come to find out that I think that the overall narrative of how that was supposed to happen is BS. Mm -hmm. This is one of those ones where I came away more convinced. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wanted to be convinced and I was, but I'm always skeptical, but this is one of those stories where, like we keep saying, the language, just the language alone, being able to write in this weird way, being able to respond so quickly, the poltergeist activity, the fact that when these poltergeist things happen, there's no sign that anybody had been in it, in, in the cottage or done any of this on their own. Mm-hmm. Even the weird touches, like when all the furniture's moved to one side of the room and up against the kitchen door, the pot that was hung on a nail or a hook in like one of the beams that was bent. bent. Yeah. Yeah. Like some big force had just pulled it magnetically and just bent it. I mean, who would think to do that? 
you would probably, if you were pranking somebody, I would assume you would just think to like, oh, let's just take it down and throw it over there on the pile. Right. Not bend it and leave it there. That yeah. seems so strange and kind of random unless you believe that this is some irresistible force coming through and pushing everything to the side in a non-human, non-physical kind of way. And I also think that Ken wouldn't have been such a bitch about everything if it was a hoax. Yeah, yeah, agreed. He wouldn't be talking about like how down he was all the time and how depressing it was and nobody believed him and how he was afraid of being mocked by the community. I kind of, I mentioned it and then breezed over it when we were talking about it being in the newspaper. But he talked about it with people. Mm-hmm. When he went into the store, when they went into the store to pick up a copy of the paper, the clerk was like, it's on page seven. Everybody's reading it. Like, knew immediately why they were buying that paper. So, it's Occam's razor almost a little bit. Mm -hmm. Is it more likely, you have to make so many more assumptions. You have to assume that somebody's able to break into their cottage. They admit that it's not very secure, but you have to admit that, that they, you have to make the assumption that somebody's able to break in over and over again. Yeah. Hundreds of times without being caught. Yeah without leaving any traces or any signs that they're able to do this, that they're able to create these piles and pyramids and Jenga block stacks of random stuff around the kitchen without ever waking anybody up in the middle of the night, without ever dropping anything, Mm -hmm. the writing on the floors and on the pillars in these weird ways with this weird writing style. I mean, even if it was Ken and Debbie, they talk about that SPR people were there mm-hmm. and observing them when a message appeared and they still refused to concede that it was real. Like they talked about that one of the messages had appeared. They wrote a message and then went to get Ken and Peter and whoever else from this pub around the corner. And then when they came back, they realized that there was a response to the message. It was just after something like 35 pages of just blank space, carriage returns or whatever. Yeah, that's an odd thing to add for a hoax. Yeah. Yeah, and then just how sort of profound some of the messages are and how like heartfelt they are. And then the explanations of poltergeist and time travel and all these things. I mean, from a scientific perspective, they're correct. Mm-hmm. To physically travel in time, you'd have to overcome the limitation of the speed of light. And at that point, you would you would almost create a uh, black hole. Mm-hmm. You'd, you'd have so much force and so much acceleration that it would disrupt everything around you. That's all real. Like, that's, that's accurate as far as I can tell. And, you know, we brought it up with Dr. Hasseltine off the podcast. And he, I'm not going to say that he agreed with what they said, but he agreed that that is the case. Yeah. That that is, you know, you're, you're trying to overcome this physical limitation. There's an energy limitation. There's a speed limitation. And you're going to be creating this uh, incredibly dense mass by trying to do it. And I don't know that the burglar who's doing all this stuff knows that. Yeah. And can create these analogies about how time travel works or communicating through time works. It's all, you just have to make so many assumptions that they can do this stuff. They can write in this old English style that takes Peter a week to do that. They can somehow, I mean, we know that somebody went to 
that library. Yeah. It was interfering with something there. It's, there's so many more assumptions that have to be accepted to, to say that it's a hoax versus saying, I believe that somehow a message being communicated through time is somehow being caught in the circuitry of this computer. Well, I mean, we could probably count on our hands and feet how many people would be capable of pulling this hoax off. Like if it, right. if they were someone breaking in, I mean, I don't, I don't know when Stephen Hawking ended up in a wheelchair, but I, I don't, I don't think he was breaking in and creating these <laughs> messages. So, yeah. yeah, and it's, I think a lot of the people who try to debunk this, I've I've seen some of them say that the English used is not right, but I don't know what their source is on that. And again, it's one of these things where this Peter guy is trying to say this appears to be the right contemporary language for this area. Right. Now, I don't know if somebody around the world is able to figure that out. If somebody in America is trying to debunk that, I don't know if they're going to be able to do that as somebody as, as well as somebody who's in that location. Right. And can go to libraries and churches and find these old records and find these samples of writings. A lot of them talk about how... Ken and them could have done it and how the computer could have been bugged. And I mean, they bring up a lot of SPR's hoax theories Mm -hmm. and they just make me think that they didn't read the book. Yeah. Uh, There's a particular person and I'm not going to give him the credit of saying his name that basically just goes in and debunks things. And I use debunks in air quotes, but it's, it's a lot of the same thing. Well, it must be. It has to be. It cannot be this. And I also think that at the end of the story, it's not much of a grand finale. You know what I mean? It's like just kind of fizzles off into the distance and we don't hear any more about it. And how hard would it be, especially two people, to keep this a secret? If it was a hoax, you know, eventually they're going to be like, I got you. You know what I mean? Like hoaxers don't really seem to last forever. It's, it's always at some point. Yeah. Yeah. It was all bullshit. I busted you. I was, I was riffing on you. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it does kind of end. I mean, I think the fact that it doesn't end with some huge reveal is telling. Yes. It would have been too good. Yeah. It would have been too much of a good story if it had ended with some like huge thing. But I think the letters that it ended with, it's like the end of a really good uh, friendship with a pen pal. Mm. That's basically what it was. The whole thing just seems very, very real to me. I want to. I almost want to see if I can reach out to this guy. To Ken? Maybe I should. Yeah. Absolutely. See if he wants to come on the show and talk about it or, I mean, I'm sure, I, I don't know that he would. Right. Because they talk in the postscript about how they got messages from people and they got these, this communication from 2105 and they just, it's one of these things where, well, how do I know that you didn't get this from a newspaper article or at a certain point from the book or whatever? Well, yeah. Email him if you can find him, him and or Deb and or Peter and or uh, the 
what was it, SPR? Frank Davies. Yeah, the SPR people. Yeah, just if you can find them, email them and be like, listen to the podcast and tell me what I got wrong. Right. All right. Well, I guess that's all we've got for you tonight on Cryptique. We hope you enjoyed the show. Let me tell you what you need to know real quick before we wrap it up. You can find us on TikTok, YouTube, X, Gab, Truth, Instagram, Facebook. All those places are going to be in the show notes. And don't forget to tune back in on Thursday evening for our enigmatic interview with Dr. (laughs) Eric Hasseltine where we cover all things AI, including potential to do evil and its potential to be helpful, as well as some spycraft, superhuman abilities, neuroscience, and more. This is Jay for Ryan with a pro tip. Never take healthcare advice from someone whose goal is depopulation. We're looking at you, Bill Gates. Good evening, <laughs> keepers. That's good. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. It's time for a special announcement. You all know about the infamous Zombie Road from our podcast, a real-life dark forest just west of St. Louis. Well, we're planning a free Zombie Road tour on Saturday, October 28th at noon. All are welcome, but the tour will include descriptions of violence, death, and hauntings. Zombie Road boasts an array of hauntings, including shadow people, a railroad worker's spirit, a lady in white, old blue, the mummy, a monkey man, flannel man, black-eyed kids, and so much more. Deaths were commonplace in the area, beginning with Native American battlegrounds, suicides, accidental deaths, and murders. The tour will be 100% free, and we will have some merch for sale, so bring some cash. Join us for a Halloween party like no other on the infamous Zombie Road. Feel free to come dressed up in your scariest costume. We'll see you there Saturday, October 28th at 12 p.m. Central Time. Sherman Beach Park, 1582 St. Paul Road, Baldwin, Missouri, 63021. Good evening, Crypt Keepers.